Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, happy big game Sunday. Uh, a few years ago, the NFL was threatening to sue churches that put the words super and bowl together. Uh, apparently, they have it trademarked. So ever since then, it's just big game Sunday. So hope you enjoy. And if you're a betting person, uh, just bet on the red team. I guaranteed to uh, win tonight. Uh, if you are a first-time guest, my name is Aaron, uh, lead pastor for Riverwood. And uh, I want to start with a very informal, highly unscientific poll. I would like to know by a show of hands what various social media websites you use. Now, some of you use these sites constantly. Others of you, you got an account way back when and you haven't logged in in years, all right? But you still have an account, all right? I want to know how many of you actually have an account. So whether you haven't checked in in a year or you've been on it 12 times already this morning, I want you to raise your hand. All right, how many of you have a Facebook account? Okay, that's what I suspected. Almost all of you. Uh, not not, not uh, 13 yet, are you, uh, Bastion? Okay, yeah, yeah. D don't worry, none of your... None of your peers are doing Facebook anymore. It's for old people. Uh, all right. Uh, let's see. Uh, Instagram. How many of you have an Instagram account? Okay. Still several hands. A few less. Uh, how many of you have a formerly known as Twitter account, now called X? Okay. I, uh, oh, yeah. Jake's like, oh, we kind of do. Redeeming Rebels? No, my, You're... Oh, okay. Jake, Jake is a ISIS plant on Twitter. That's, that's awesome. You can use that for your sermon illustration someday. That'll be a good, that's great. Okay, uh, let's see. What else? Um, Snapchat. Okay. All right. Few, I was expecting it to skew way younger, but there, there was a few more up there than I thought. Okay. How about TikTok? Oh, not as many hands as I expected. I expected more on that one. Okay, how about uh, Pinterest? Okay, all right. Proud of you guys. I thought it'd just be mostly females, so good job. Good job. Uh, LinkedIn. Oh, way more than I expected. Okay, all right. Um, how about Reddit? No way. That many. Okay, I did not expect that many. Uh, Discord. Okay. You have, yeah, maybe you haven't. You made an account, but you haven't, like, signed in in years. Okay, Discord. All right. Um, uh, then I wanted to do a couple of newer ones. How many of you have a Threads account? Oh, not, not as many as I thought there might be. Okay. And then the brand new baby on the block, Blue Sky. Yeah. I, I signed up this week. Uh, it went public this week. And uh, I logged in, and it's basically Twitter. Like, it looks identical. Uh, it's founded by the former founder of Twitter, but... I'm just like, why would I, anyway, so I'll probably never sign in ever again. But Blue Sky is the, the new kid on the block. Oh, speaking of new kid on the blocks, many of you know Courtney. Uh, Courtney gave birth to Theodore Albert. Yeah, Theodore Albert uh, Curl, born yesterday at 3.22 p.m., six pounds, nine ounces, I think, somewhere uh, in there. Um, Anyway, uh, he's doing overall well. Uh, he did go to the NICU for a couple of hours. He was at 37 weeks. They induced, um, but uh, uh, they were just a little concerned for lung capacity, but he's back with mom, and uh, we need to be praying that he figures out this whole milk thing uh, and, and how to suck. So, uh, yeah, we want babies to suck. Uh, all right, so pray, pray for little uh, Theo and uh, for Courtney's uh, recovery. All right, back to social media. Uh, 
How many of you think you know what the most popular social media platform is globally? Any guesses? You have a guess? TikTok. No. No. Okay. Facebook. Yes. In 2023, Facebook averaged 3.05 billion active users per month. So if you signed in in the month of December, or December one time, you counted. If you signed in a thousand times in December, you counted as one. That is 3.05 billion people each month, just on Facebook. All right, any guesses what number two is? Instagram? No, Instagram's actually fourth. No, Snapchat isn't even in the top six. No, Twitter doesn't even make the top six. WhatsApp. WhatsApp is not that popular here in America, but it is incredibly popular overseas. When I was in Kenya in 2019, I think WhatsApp was about the only social media that anyone used. It was so popular there. Elon Musk in buying Twitter basically said he wants to turn Twitter, now X, into the American version of WhatsApp. That's his goal. So if you want to know what Twitter's moving towards, just get a WhatsApp account and you'll figure out where Elon Musk's headed uh, with the platform. All right, number three was YouTube. All right, there were 2.5 billion, almost 2.5 billion users every month. Then in fourth place was Instagram, just over 2 billion. WeChat is fifth. This is the most popular in China. WeChat, I know, yeah, I've heard of it. Some people, though, have never heard of it. You know how hard it was to find a WeChat logo? Uh, it's just no one has WeChat here. But in China, it's, it's about the only one allowed other than number six, TikTok. TikTok is uh, the sixth most active social media account in the world. Now, we often will malign social media Occasionally, we'll praise it in certain things. But I think when some of these founders began these things, had no idea that they were going to create jobs. And I don't just mean jobs like system engineer or computer programmer. I mean a job like content creator. There are people who do nothing but create content for their YouTube channel or their TikTok account or for their Instagram page and they are able to make enough money to live. Oftentimes, these content creators get put under a label called influencer. An influencer, according to the Influencer Marketing Hub, describes an influencer as someone who has the power to affect the purchasing decisions of others because of his or her authority, knowledge, position, or relationship with his or her audience. Now, some people are influencers simply because they are already famous outside of social media. They've joined up with different platforms and have amassed a following. And therefore, when they say certain things or recommend certain things, people will buy it. For instance, Oprah Winfrey did not become famous through social media, was already famous. However, if only 10% of her uh, followers on Twitter, just, just Twitter alone, if just 10% bought a book that she recommends for her Oprah book club, they would sell over 4 million copies because she has over 42 million followers just on X. Now, she's not going to get 10% to buy the book. 
But if a publisher can get her to recommend a book in just 1%, they will have sold 400,000 books. So of course, they're going to like pay her to read the book and promote it because it's going to be big money for them. She is an influencer. However, there are a number of influencers who didn't start off famous and then got this big following on social media. They were able to carve their way through social media, slowly amassing a following. I wanted to find someone who was not famous, at least to me, and, and yet is considered an influencer. So went online, found all these categories. I just picked food, and the third one listed was this woman by the name of Megan Gilmore. I'd never heard of Megan before. She only has 230, oh, sorry, 253,000 followers on Instagram, right? Compare that to the 42 million that follow Oprah, only 253,000. And yet she's considered an influencer because she affects the purchasing decisions of people who need gluten-free food. If I was active on Instagram, I would have to be giving this woman a follow. She's carved out a niche, and she now makes a living doing nothing but content creation for her Instagram, and I don't know if she's on other platforms, but she is an influencer. So now I want to do one last informal poll. By show of hands, how many of you would consider yourself an influencer? Ooh. I, mo most of us, though, would say, uh, no one's going to buy anything I recommend. Like, I, I, I'm like, I'm invisible online. Like, no one really notices. Like, I post on, on Twitter, and I, I think, like, I might get six views and one like. I mean, like, I, I am truly a nobody on uh, a Twitter. N most of us would say, yeah, not an influencer. And yet you are an influencer. It might not be on TikTok or Instagram, but you actually have way more influence than you probably realize. And to show it to you today, I invite you to open up your Bible to 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings 5. We are in week two of a series that we are calling Living with Open Fists. The word fist is an acronym. It stands for Finances, Influence, Skills, and Time. It's a series all about giving, about generosity. But as we said last week, generosity here at Riverwood is not a money thing. It's a heart thing. Now, money is definitely a part of it. As we saw last week, we looked at the F, finances, and we saw that God wants us to open this up, to be generous, to do good works for others, to use these things for the blessing of other people. But today, we get to move to the I and see that this giving really is more than just money. That today, we are to give our influence. And what I want some of you to realize is that you actually have influence, even if you're thinking, well, I, I don't. Now, I was originally going to preach from 1 Samuel chapter 3. Now, some of you know the story. It's a story about little young Samuel. That's the name of the book. And, and Samuel is going to bed one night when suddenly he hears his vo a voice call his name. Well, he is training to become a priest. And so he just assumes that it's Eli, his mentor. So he gets up, toddles down the hallway, goes in and says, you called? And Eli's like, no, go back to bed. And so he goes back to bed and he hears the voice say his name again. So Samuel gets up, walks down to Eli and says, you called? He's like, no, I told you, leave me alone. And he'd go back to bed. It happened a third time. And finally, Eli realizes it's probably God. 
And what I, the reason I chose that story was I wanted you to see the influence that Eli had upon young Samuel to help him listen to the voice of God and obey it because Samuel ended up becoming a very key figure within the nation of Israel. But as I read through that passage on Tuesday and began working on the sermon Wednesday afternoon, I started realizing it was going to miss the mark. Because we would look at the story and realize, well, of course Eli's an influencer. He's older, he's got more experience, and, and he's been put in charge of this kid. He's supposed to be mentoring him and training him. He's an influencer. And I suddenly realized a number of you would be able to hear that sermon and go, well, yep, Eli's an influencer, but I'm not an Eli. I'm not older, or I, I'm not as experienced. I don't know the Bible that well. I don't have 100 followers on Instagram. I'm not an influencer. So I knew we needed to study a different passage of Scripture so that you could see you are. And that's what leads us to 2 Kings chapter 5. Today we're going to be doing verses 1 through 19. It's a little bit more than we normally do, but we're going to read the entire thing. So hopefully your Bible's open. Sit back, read, and join me for a story time with Aaron. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, the king. Thus and spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, well, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are, are not Abana and Farpar, the, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. 
Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he, Elisha, said, As the Lord lives and before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he, Naaman, urged him, Elisha, to take it. But Elisha refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant, in other words, to himself, two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And he, Elisha, said to Naaman, go in peace. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we have uh, read your word, and yet we need to know what it means. Today, there are some people here who need to hear the, the things you want to do through them. Help them to see that you have given them a place where they have a position of authority. Even those of us who, who don't occupy uh, positions with certain titles or, or certain uh, uh, demanded respect, that even those of us who may be younger, not as experienced, that we actually have a great role to play in your kingdom, that you can use us to achieve great things. So help us, Father, to hear what you have for us, not just what I've tried to prepare, but what you want us to hear from you through this story. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Our story today is about this guy by the name of Naaman. But unlike most of the stories within First and Second Kings, Naaman is not a Jewish king. He's not a Jewish prophet. He's not even Jewish. He's from Syria. And he's a commander in the army in Syria. Now, Syria was also known as Aram. And so sometimes you'll see in scriptures that talk about the Arameans. It's where we get our word Aramaic. He's from this country that's north. If you want, you can see this map. Aram is located north of Israel. And at this time, Aram and Israel kind of have a complicated relationship. There's times where they're kind of allies, but then there's other times where they, there's, it's, it's a complicated relationship. They're, they're foes. It, 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 we see that, you know, at this time, there's, there's got to be a little bit of peace. Now, we learned early in, in verse 2 that there had been a raid, because we see this little servant girl who was Israeli. But yet, there must have been some level of peace, because if they were at outright war, the king of Syria would never have sent uh, Naaman down into there. It, it would have looked like an invasion. So there, there must have been some sort of peace and agreement, but it was a fragile peace. And we can tell it's a fragile peace based on the king's response to the letter. Now, the story does not name the king. I, I did some digging, and a couple of different uh, sources said that this king was actually Jehoram. Jehoram was the son of Jehoshaphat, who was the son-in-law of Ahab. And Jehoram was not a good king. 
Now, I was a little confused by this because Jehoram isn't crowned king until chapter 8. But then I discovered that 2 Kings is not laid out chronologically. And so the author decided that this fits really well right here. And so begins to share the story about Naaman. So we're just going to trust the guys who are way smarter than me. And we'll just assume that this is Jehoram. And Jehoram throws a little hissy fit when he reads this letter. Because he thinks it's a trap. Naaman has walked in with his servants. And he's brought with him a ton of gold, a ton of silver, and ten changes of clothing. Now, you may be thinking, okay, the clothing's a little weird. But back then, they would wear the same set of clothes for years. So clothing was just as expensive and valuable and precious as gold, especially if they were fine clothing, as probably in this case it was. One source said that the value of this gold, silver, and clothing was probably worth about $1.2 million. In other words, Naaman is desperate. He is desperate for a healing. He's willing to expend a huge amount of money in order to procure a healing. But yet, Jehoram thinks it's a trick. It wouldn't matter if you brought in $1.2 million or $10 billion. I can't heal anyone. And so what he's thinking is this is a setup. It's a trap. Because they're going to bring all this up. Well, look how lavish and generous we were. Yet you wouldn't even heal our man. You must hate us. We're going to war. And this the end of lives in Israel, and maybe even ending the life of Jehoram. And so he rips his clothing because he doesn't understand why they're doing this. And yet Naaman is desperate, desperate for healing. What is it he needs healing from? Leprosy. Now, in our modern day, when we hear the word leprosy, we think of what is known as Hansen's disease. Hansen's disease is a, a, a bacteria that infects the body, and it can affect the, the respiratory system, uh, it can affect the eyes, but it mostly affects the nerves, to the point that you no longer can feel anything. Now, that might sound kind of nice, yet it's really bad, because if you end up touching something hot and get burned, you have no idea, and you could do permanent damage. In fact, your body can't heal because of the Hansen's disease, because of this bacteria, and so your extremities start to die, sometimes even falling off. It is mean, awful, horrible disease. Now, thankfully, it's actually way harder to contract than you would think. You need prolonged exposure. And some people who carry the bacteria, it sometimes takes 20 years before you ever see any sign of symptoms. And modern medicine has now made it where it's, it's pretty much curable. Back in the 1980s, there was something like 5 million cases of Hansen's disease globally. In 2020, there were only 200,000 cases, over half of those in India. It is a very curable disease. But in Naaman's time, it wasn't. It could be your life. Now, back in Naaman's time, the word leprosy just was a, a, a kind of catch-all word. Because to them, it didn't refer just to what we know as Hansen's disease. It, it referred to any sort of skin infection, it, lesions, a, anything of that sort. And, and so it, if you showed anything outwardly, they just said you had leprosy. Well, we don't know if he just had the annoying kind or the deadly kind. All we know is that he was desperate. Now, if he was Israeli, he would have had to go and live in a camp outside of the city. 
according to Jewish law, if you had any sort of skin disease, you had to live outside in this camp with other lepers and wait for God to heal you. And then if God healed you, you'd show yourself to the priests, and, and if certain things were in order, you could then come back into society. But it was God's way of protecting the people from these sort of things spreading among everyone else. But Aram did not have any sort of rule. The Syrians just continued on through life. So everybody could see his leprosy, including this little girl. And so I'm guessing that it wasn't just kind of annoying, getting in the way. I'm guessing that this could probably cost him his life. And that is why we see him take $1.2 million worth of goods to Israel, trying to buy a healing. Now, we hear in there that Elisha finds out that the king has ripped his clothes. According to this map, Elisha is down in the city Gilgal. I know, I know the map's kind of hard to read from where you're at. But in, in Gilgal, we see Elisha go there in chapter 4. But as I study the map, I realize it would take a, a few hours for a, a, a servant to run from Gilgal up to Samaria. And so my guess is that he's actually much closer to Samaria, probably right there near the city. And he's heard what's happened and sends this servant. And so this is happening within probably just an hour or so of Naaman's arrival. But we don't know. Now, what you need to know is Jehoram is not a, a, a fearer of God. He does not follow in God's ways. He is a bad king. And so because of that, he does not like Elisha. Because Elisha, as a prophet, says, um, you're not supposed to do that. Well, I want to do what I want to do because I'm the king. And so Elisha is not allowed into the palace. So he has to send a servant, has to send word. And the word is, hey, send him to me. Now, I, I wonder, Jehoram probably doesn't want to. He doesn't like Elisha. He doesn't want Elisha to look good. And yet, he doesn't want to go to war. And so I think out of desperation, it's like, all right, fine. If you can, if you can heal him and save us from, from a costly war, great, go for it. But knowing Jehoram, he probably was like, yeah, but I get to keep the gold and the silver. So Naaman makes his way down to this house to see Elisha. But then Elisha does two things that are incredibly disrespectful to Naaman. The first is he doesn't show up at the door. He sends a servant. Culturally, socially, politically, Naaman's at the top. Like he's just under king. And so you would expect Elisha who as a prophet would be much lower, to come out and show deference. In fact, you, you heard in there that Naaman wishes, that he expected uh, Elisha to walk out and just like wave his hand over the place and go, you are healed, like do magic or something. Elisha doesn't even show up. Elisha just sends a servant. Servant's like, oh, oh, uh, um, yeah, hi, hi, Mr. Uh, Naaman. Um, yeah, uh, Elisha's kind of indisposed. Uh, he, he's upstairs praying, um, so he, he can't come down. Um, but he wants me to tell you that... Uh, you're to go to the Jordan River and, and just dip yourself seven times and all be, will be good. So there's the disrespect of not coming yourself. But now the second disrespect is telling him to go to the Jordan River. We don't know if the Jordan River was just smaller, so not as impressive as the rivers back in Damascus. Or, or maybe the river's dirtier. The, the waters up there look much clearer and cleaner. All we know is he takes great offense. Like, I've traveled all this way. I've traveled over 200 miles, and you're telling me to go to your pathetic little river and dip in there? I could have done that back home. So he's mad. 
He's insulted by the disrespect of Elisha not coming, and now he's mad because he's told, you got to go to this pathetic little river. Well, as you heard in the story, he changes his mind, goes to the Jordan, dips in it seven times, and on the seventh time when he comes up, his skin is clean. says it's like a baby's. Now, maybe you're sitting here thinking, okay, Aaron, that's all well and good, but what does any of this have to do with influence? Actually, a lot. There are three key instances of influence in this story. The first one is the one you would expect. Elisha clearly influenced Naaman. Now, Naaman was insulted at first, but the fact that he follows through shows that he respected Elisha. He, he does exactly what he says. He goes to this awful, dirty, pathetic river. He dips in it seven times, and he's clean. So this is the one that you expect. May, Elisha may not have, you know, 50 million followers on Instagram, but he clearly had a reputation so that Naaman would, would do what he asked. But there's two more, and these two are very unexpected. The first unexpected influencer are Naaman's servants. Notice verse 13 with me. But his servants came near him and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? I want you to notice the two things that these servants do. The first thing is they show incredible respect. Notice how they address him. They say, my father. Now, they're not trying to say, oh, hey, dad. Right? These are not his kids. These are truly his servants. But by using the word father, they're saying, we recognize your position, but it means we care about you. And so they, the first thing they do is this respect and care would say, hey, we're not trying to tell you what to do. We don't pretend that we have a place of influence. We, we can't tell you, you must go. So you can do what you want. But out of respect, we ask that you just listen to us because we care for you. And then the next thing they say, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Now, I'm using the English Standard Version like I do almost every week. But because of this verse, I almost switched to a different translation. Because every other translation I consulted doesn't have, it is a good word. It says, if he asked you to do a great thing. In other words, if he asked you to do something really difficult, you do it. Because these servants know, as it says back in verse 1, this is a mighty man of valor. And, and so they're not questioning his bravery. They, they don't say, well, we think you're afraid to go dip into the, the Jordan. They're not trying to use reverse psychology. They're like, we know if he asked you to do something really, really hard, like don't eat for a week or cut yourself in a certain way or, or you know, perform this really difficult task, you are a mighty man of valor. You would do it. All he's done, though, is asked you to go dip in the, the Jordan. It's like they're saying, hey, we're here. What, what harm will it do? If you go into the Jordan River, dip seven times and nothing changes, you're wet and that's all. But if you dip and you're healed, because after all, that, that's why we came, isn't it? So they show incredible respect, but they also show that they care, and they use wisdom in their influence. But there's another unexpected influencer, 
And we actually meet this influencer back in verse 2. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. And she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who was in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. We don't know the age of this little girl. We don't even know her name. All we know is that she is working as a slave for Naaman's wife in a foreign land among people who worship a false god. Now it says that she was taken during a raid. Perhaps she was taken violently. Perhaps she saw her family murdered. We don't know. But if I were in her position, I think there'd be a part of me saying, well, it serves you right to have leprosy. You go and steal me from my family. You hurt them and kill them. God is punishing you. You deserve this. I hope you die. Yeah, you just saw the blackness of my heart. (laughs) That is not what this little girl does. This little girl just can't help herself. She says to her mistress, oh, if he were in Samaria, the prophet there could heal him. That word to the mistress gets to Naaman, who takes it to the king, which allows him to to assemble a group to travel 200 miles south, which ends up eventually getting to Elisha's door, which then takes him to the Jordan River, where where he is healed. All because of an uninfluential little girl. Some of you, God has put you in a place where you know you have influence. Maybe it's because you are a parent. Maybe it's because you've been put in a certain place in your job. Maybe it's because you've been on your team long enough. You're in a place where other people actually look to you and you have influence. You are to wield that influence wisely. You are to give it for the good of others and the glory of God. We expect Elisha to have influence. And what does he do with that influence? He does it for the good of Naaman and the glory of God. And so if God has given you that kind of a place, you cannot hold on to it You can't just do the job. This is something that God has given you, and you are to use it wisely. How can you use your influence for the good of others to help them succeed and do it for the glory of God? But a number of you, you may say, well, in this portion of life, I'm an influencer. But, you know, everywhere else, I'm a nobody. I'm like Aaron on Twitter. I'm invisible. No one's going to listen to me. No, no, one, no one cares what I think. I could recommend something and who's going to follow that? And yet, you're in the place of the servants or the little girl. You need to show respect, but you show that you care, that you're actually for them. You don't act like you have the right to tell them what to do in life, but you can just simply share And live, and who knows what will happen. Because if God can use a little girl to change Naaman, he most definitely can use you. 
because this little girl didn't just help Naaman find physical healing. He wasn't just changed on the outside. God used her to help change him on the inside. He is now a fundamentally different person. And we see it at the very end of the story. If your Bible's still open there, go down to verse 17. Then Naaman said, Oh, this is where Naaman has been healed. He's come back. He wants to pay Elisha. Elisha's like, nope, not, not accepting your money, not taking your $1.2 million. So in verse 17, Naaman responds, well, if not, please let there be given to your servant, to me, two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And Elisha said to him, go in peace. You see, he wasn't just cleansed on the outside. He's changed on the inside. He now realizes that there is no other God except the God of Israel. He's the one and only true God. Perhaps it's because he tried praying to Rimmon. Maybe he did certain rituals to, of, of water or sacrifice. Who knows what he's tried to do and nothing's worked. But he goes down to Israel, doesn't even get to meet the prophet, doesn't see the prophet wave his hand over him. He has to go to the dirty, small, unimpressive Jordan and he's healed. He now knows there is a God, the God of Israel. And he's now saying, I will worship no other God but this God. Now you may be wondering, but what's up with the dirt? Why does he ask for two mule loads of soil? We see, back then they thought gods were over certain geographic areas. So when two armies would clash fighting over land, they thought there was also a clash happening up in the heavens. That in the spiritual realm, the gods were also fighting. And so whichever army won, that was because their god was more powerful. And so if your army won, you took more land, your god took on more geographic area. And so he knows, I'm about to head back home. That means I'm going to be on Syrian soil. And so he wants to take Israeli soil, because to him, that's like he's taking his new God, the one God, with him. So that when he's in this house of Rimmon, this false God, and he's with the king, and the king is bowing down, and he's expected to bow down with him, he wants to put some dirt there so that when he's bowing before this false God, in his heart, he's bowing before the one God. He has changed completely. Not just outwardly, but inwardly. Because a little girl had the heart and care to say, if only my master were with the prophet in Samaria. You see, it turns out that your smallest words could actually end up making the biggest difference. Your humble approach, your caring heart, your faith in God, and your willingness to be used to open up your fist just might change someone's life and someone's eternity 
all because you let God use you as an influence. So Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be these kind of people, that we wouldn't just simply be like the Elishas. Lord, if some of us are in that position, you've, you've put us in a place of influence, help us to use it wisely, to, to give it for the good of others and for your glory. But Lord, there are many of us here that there are certain segments in life we, where we're just invisible. We don't seem to matter, and yet you've put us in that place for a purpose. And so, Lord, whether it's just one person we impact or a whole entire world, help us to be willing and ready to just submit ourselves to our words, our actions, our heart to you, and let you work through us to influence people to find you and follow you. Father, I pray that you will do this, because I know that as we experience it, we will get to see great joy for ourselves as well as for others. And in all of that, you receive the glory. Lord, we want to put a smile on your face. Lord, some of us here, we're going through hard things. It is really difficult for us to even think about being used for the good of others. And yet, Lord, even this little girl who's in slavery, taken away from her family, she's in a horrible, difficult place. It's there that you use her. And so help us, Father, to realize that even when things aren't going well at work, that even when things are looking really bleak in the bank account, that when that relationship is just incredibly strained, when we are fighting our own internal mental battles, that even there in our weakness, you are strong, that you can work and you can use us for the good of others and for your glory. So that is why today, Father, we just continue to bow before you, to surrender it all. We open our fists and we say, God, I may not have much, but with it, you can do much more than I ever could. So Father, as we surrender our, our lives, our hearts, our ways, our words to you, may you use them for your glory and for the good of others. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We want to give you time to respond to just spend some time in prayer. Some of you heard from God during that sermon. And so we want to, to give you that moment through the song, through, through just a quiet moment, as well as through the communion elements. When we take these communion elements, we are declaring that Jesus Christ died on a cross and rose again from a grave. That he has tremendous influence. He has influenced so many of us in this room to give our lives to him. And so when we, when we go to those elements, we're remembering that he is not asking us to do anything he hasn't already done. That if God could use a carpenter from the small little town of Nazareth to absolutely change us at the spiritual level, then he can use us in amazing ways. And so as you come to those elements, remember that, that little wafer of bread. That represents his body. When you break the tab down and you pull the, the lid back and you take that cup that juice represents his blood which was shed for you may you take that saying thank you jesus and may you continue to influence me to go be an influence for you if you're here today though and you are not a follower of jesus yet then i'm just going to ask that you very respectfully not go to these communion elements we're not trying to keep something from you we just think that that will end up being a distraction to you. Because what I'm going to encourage you to do is to stay where you're at and during the song, have a conversation with God. 
ask him, is it true? Is this story of Naaman real? Is this story of Jesus true? Because if it is, it changes everything. And if you realize it's true, then I encourage you, in that conversation with God, pray. Submit your life to him. Surrender. Confess your sin. Acknowledge who Jesus is and what he did. And say, God, I may not understand all of it, but I understand enough. And just like Naaman wanted to go and worship the one true God, you're now saying, God, I want to know you, and I want to worship you, the one true God. If, if that's you, would you just let us know whether you mark it on your connection card or you just come find me or if you happen to know Ed or Matt, one of our elders, just let them know that you've made this decision. Our, our goal here isn't just to simply get you to, to pray some sort of prayer, make that decision and, and call it good. We want to help you become more like Jesus. Our broken, dying world needs people who will live like Jesus lived and love like Jesus loved. We don't want your life just looking a little bit better on the outside. We want to see you absolutely fundamentally changed on the inside. So would you just let us know that you made that decision? But even if you're a first-time guest with us and you've made that decision, whether that was last week or a hundred years ago, these communion elements are for you. Jesus died for you and your sins and you need to worship him. So may you come and worship. May you come and surrender. May you come and do this in remembrance of him.